Welcome to Think Like a Penguin, The Art of Flying. This is the podcast to help you think outside the box, live more confidently against the grain and become your more authentic self. Penguins don't traditionally fly, but what's to say they won't one day? Welcome back. I am afraid it is me again. I've had a fascinating conversation with my housemate. I have many, many conversations with him. He's extremely deep thinking, philosophical, very intelligent, a really inspiring guy. He's come over from Ireland. He had a really um, tough and challenging um, upbringing and adult life. And I wish he could speak on this podcast. Every week I jokingly kind of go, okay, it's our time and invite him to be in the conversation. But he's just a very shy and um, private person. So he doesn't want to be in this conversation, but I'm going to share some of the things that we have discussed around the topic of the importance of experiencing struggle and hardship to create resilience, to help with growing into adulthood. We've both remarked on certain characteristics of Australian people. Um, I'm going to be very careful how I say this. There's, there seems to be less resilience and maturity and um, ability to deal with sort of everyday things and issues compared to maybe people from his past and certainly people from my past. Um, and the conversation started from me saying, I wonder why, and these are the sort of questions I have in my head on the daily, but I wonder why some people feel the need to complain or um, victimize themselves or have, a, have an issue that they talk about, whereas other people don't. And I said to my housemate, Andreas, I said, have I ever complained to you? Like, I can't remember a thing that's really caused me to need to kind of vent or get upset. And he said, no, I can't. I literally can't think of one. And I said, I can't think of one for you either. But he was talking about a colleague who, that you know, those people that just sort of drain you and they've always, and you say, how's your day? And, oh, you know what it's like. Well, oh, yeah, I mean, oh, it's not bad. It's like, oh, God, like, why are people defaulted to that kind of response as opposed to other people who would be maybe more neutral or even positive in their response? So this um, opened up a sort of Q&A and we have a lot of these most nights actually. We, we don't have a TV at home. I've never had a television and we just have fascinating conversations. And one night, hopefully, I'll secretly record him because he's so wise and philosophical and he's so well-read. I've never met someone who's read so much. Um, but this was the question I posed tonight. Very organically, it turned into a conversation and it got us both thinking and talking about why is it that some people have the default setting to complain about meaningless, trivial, small, seemingly insignificant things Whereas other people are less inclined to complain about sort of your everyday. And the conclusion in a nutshell that we came up with was that relative to the experience that they have had growing up, their issue for them is a genuine issue. 
And we know that it is human nature as an evolutionary trait to find fault, to find risk, to find something to be worried about, to have to fix, to have to improve upon. It is built into our genetic makeup to see something that we need to be wary of. The problem is we live in a world, in a society, most of us do, where we are so privileged and life is so easy that we pick things, and this is probably subconscious, but we pick things to worry and fuss about that actually aren't a risk to us. So they kind of don't need to be worried about or fussed about. So why is it, and there's many reasons for this, but why is it that we don't live in a way where we are actually having to build resilience? Why is it that our lives are so easy One suggestion I put forward was that we live in a society now where parents are desperately trying to show their love to their children and some people show their love by doing everything for that child, for um, nurturing, caring for, cooking, doing their washing, basically kind of providing everything for that individual, child, teenager, young adult, as a way of saying, look, I love you so much, I'm going to do everything for you. But actually, what myself and Andreas sort of were talking about was, is that love or is that kind of verging on a bit abusive? Hang fire, because that's a very bold statement I've just said, and I appreciate I'm potentially going to offend people. By abusive, I mean it's not giving that individual, if you overlove someone with doing everything for them, do you give them the opportunity to learn how to fend for themselves? Or do you restrict that ability for that person to grow? And we were talking about, I mean, we talked about lots of things. I'm going to bounce around a bit in this. We're speaking about um, some, mostly men, we were talking about men, how they have been, um, and especially in the Indian culture and some of the Asian cultures, but also a little bit here, they've had everything done for them. They've had um, kind of their cooking done. They've they've been um, funded. They've had their clothes washed. They've just had everything provided for them. And then they leave the home and they don't have the skills, the life skills to do some of those things themselves. And I'm, I'm obviously not talking about every single individual here. I'm just talking about those people that struggle to become resilient, capable, um, mature adults because they haven't been given the opportunity to have to learn to do these things. And then potentially they come out of kind of adult adolescence into adulthood and either they rely on someone else to do that for them, so they carry on that negative trait of, I will just depend on someone. And potentially they have a sense of resentment or self-loathing because they know that they are dependent on someone else. They know that they are ill-equipped to deal with life. They know that they are sort of probably lacking a little bit. And it's through no fault of their own. It is because potentially they were so entitled and so privileged and so overloved that they didn't get the chance and the opportunity to grow in life skills. So I'm going to 
explain what I've just said, hopefully with some examples. I'm sure there's some of you are ready to turn off now and some of you deeply offended and say, well, that's ridiculous. Like, I love my kids and I'm going to give them everything I possibly can. But there is a reason why suicide is at the highest it's ever been. There's a reason why men feel emasculated. There's a reason why there's a lot of privilege and entitlement and people feel like they can't handle the stress of everyday life. And even tonight, I'm not even going to say what sport, but I was at a sports practice and I was making a comment about kids moving out of home. And one of the teammates was saying her adult son still love at home. And her remark was, well, it's just not set up for 20 year olds these days. And I thought, how perfect. I'm actually wanting to talk about this tonight on the podcast. But what does that even mean? Back in the day, when her parents were 20, you would save up, you would live in a shoebox if you could, you'd work hard, you'd um, like have respect for your belongings. You didn't have to have straight out of school a car and a house and a business suit and a like career. And, and the problem is we've forgotten that you need to start basic. You need to be humble and you need to work towards not just in a career, but like actually build up financially, build up spiritually, build up emotionally, build up resilience. You need to work towards becoming a rounded, mature individual. And if you've just been handed it on a plate and then in Perth, this is going to be um, probably quite unknown to people that don't live in WA, teenagers when they get to 18 are not typically moving out of home and that's because there isn't really anywhere to go in WA so if you go to university in WA kind of makes sense to just stay at home because you're probably 20 minutes half an hour away from that university anyway but then they sort of linger and they stay and it's more common that people move out of home in their mid-20s than it is when they're 18 in the UK we kind of it's a rite of passage when you when you go off to uni at 18 19 if that's your path you want to do, or if you go into the workforce, you kind of go, you go, you leave. So I left home at 18. Um, that was kind of, I think, average. But unfortunately, because people are maybe expecting that their children should just leave home, but keep up the social facade of having wealth and having a nice house and having a car, Back in the day, two, three generations ago, it was expected that you move out and you might live in a tiny one-bed flat or you live in a, um, you know, a back of a shed of in someone's garden or, and that was normal, quote unquote normal. But now it's like, there's this social pressure that, well, if you move out, you've got to move into a four-bedroom house with a pool um, detached. Like there's sort of this, we're missing this gap in between. And I think it's because people get so comfortable and so used to having privilege and having, um, having, I was trying to think of examples. It's just having, people just get given so much. And I think back to my grandparents who all served in the war. My, my grandma and granny were, um, involved in the war effort. My granny rode horses. My grandma, I think, worked in one of the factories. Um, and then my grand 
grandpa, my granddad, they both fought in the war, they both got injured in the war, they both um, survived the war. But the hardship that they went through has absolutely set them up to be more resilient, more mature, more capable, um, and more grateful, I think. So I've had a little taste of being um, a step-parent, and personally, if I was to love my kids in a way that I felt I was going to equip them to life, I for life, I would almost put in challenges, um, make them have to save for something they want, give that teaches them financial literacy. I would make them experience um, sporting situations where they're not going to win. I would teach them to, like when I was a child, I saw my parents, um, sorry, my my family. So I saw my uncle and my grandparents um, and a friend in an open casket in a coffin. And that was from the age of about eight to the age of uh, 17. So you could say, oh, that's too soon. That No, no, that's that's too inappropriate for a child. But I just think the more exposure, healthy, manageable exposure, and this is where the balance is super important, to challenge, the better. It's almost doing your child a disservice by not giving the op- them the opportunity to grow in resilience um, through adversity. So you kind of want your kids to fail and experience failure. You want your kids to experience not having much money. I often think when you hear about self-made millionaires, billionaires, very successful, financially um, thriving individuals, very, very rarely are these people, um, people that have come from a very cushy, comfortable background, you, you more often than not hear the story that they lost everything or their family experienced hardship or they grew up in poverty and there was this drive, there was this ambition, there was this thirst to make more or to kind of learn from that experience. And there's the cycle, um, the financial cycle, the three-generation kind of cycle is that you make it you maintain it, and then you lose it. So that's just in terms of financial wealth. So someone might have an experience where they grew up in a household where money was scarce or the financial security wasn't present. So that is their rocket fuel, their their, um, impetus to learn how to make money. So they make a lot of money. The next generation, because they have been born into a situation where there's quite a lot of money and privilege and security, they don't have that fire. that, that They're not exposed to the uncertainty and the instability of financial um, problems. So they're quite comfy. So they're probably more likely to just maintain that financial wealth. And then their generation after them have never not had any impetus to really maintain or thrive. They've just not been exposed to that. So they, they tend to lose it. And this happens on pretty pretty much on point three generations in a cycle so it'd be quite interesting for you to think back to your own family and see kind of where you're at maybe within that three generation cycle so if you haven't experienced something that is an incentive for behavioral change um it's very hard to get that initiative or to get that inspiration or get that motivation to really 
grow, go in a different direction, learn, thrive. And I, again, I, well, I didn't, I didn't say this at the start, but I'm pretty sure this conversation is going to rub people up the wrong way and offend people. But I think we are too comfortable. We're just not giving people the opportunity to have to learn resilience, to have to deal with complicated feelings, to have to have challenging conversations, to have to face fears, to have to feel genuine pain and hurt. And I, from a personal perspective, realized that my experience has been quite extreme. So I lived in a mental health institute, a story that I have never shared, but one example of many very harrowing, horrific memories that will live with me forever was Easter and um, I was so poorly, I couldn't go home. And there was one other girl that was brought in, I think the, the night before or the, the morning of. And they sent everyone else home. I think it was Christmas, actually, on memory, not Easter. But it was a significant time of year. So no other patients were in the hospital or it's this little ward. And there was only two staff on. And this girl, there was these three glass panels in between the dining hall section and the lounge and she punched through the glass panels, grabs some shards of glass, starts trying to stab herself, um, stab the staff, and basically just injure whoever comes in her way with this with these big shards of glass. So I just have memories of seeing her hands bleeding, side of her neck bleeding, just horrific. Because um, something out of like a horror film, it was awful. They, the, the, the nurses finally got her to the ground and then I presume she went off and had some medical assistance that she clearly needed. Never saw her again. I'm not suggesting that we expose teenagers to that kind of level of violence. However, I do find it very challenging when someone has an issue that they share and I'm just like, Mm, really you broke a nail like really that's really <laughs> that's really uh, and I recognize that I need to try and meet that person where they're at because if someone is deeply troubled by something um if they are experiencing anxiety pain distress discomfort that is real regardless of the stimulus so it could be something as small as breaking a nail I mean I'm just being a little bit silly here with that example it will mean and feel as big to that person as me experiencing someone trying to slit their throat with some glass in a hospital ward. The difference is, unless we expose the person who is deeply troubled by a broken nail to more severe experiences, more challenges, more um, opportunities to become resilient, they never will. They will literally get a trigger, an anxiety response, some sort of reaction to a broken nail. So, of course, there's a spectrum. I'm not suggesting we throw people into horrific situations, but you have to invite these things in a little bit like a phobia and never entertain the idea of trying to um, and overcome that phobia, never having exposure. All you're going to do is create more phobia around that thing you have to first of all see a photo of it or you have to think about it or if you have to see, if it's, say it's a spider, you have to look at it behind a glass and then you have to have the lid off the off the glass box and then you have to like touch it and then you hold it and, then, and so on and so on and so on. If you don't do those steps towards trying to become more resilient to that phobia, 
it's going to grow, the anxiety will grow. This is the same for life. So if you keep avoiding things and becoming comfortable, then life is just going to become impossibly hard. If you do not let your child fend for themselves and have to cook for themselves, if you don't let your child experience heartbreak, if you don't let your child experience financial ruin or at least struggle financially, if your child never has to save, and I say child, I mean like young adolescent teenager, if they never have to save up for anything, if they never have to work for anything, if you just get handed everything on a plate, where's the opportunity for them to grow? It's like almost cruel. You're not giving them a chance. Um, There's some wonderful examples where this really works and where it's embraced. So I worked at a school in New Zealand, in Hamilton, um, St. Paul's Collegiate School. And in year eight, and I think this is fantastic, they send the boys off to an outdoor education kind of uh, in the woods school for six months, six whole months, every morning at 6 a.m., They have to jump into the river, no matter whether that's frozen over or it's freezing or it doesn't matter, middle of winter, they have to jump into the river at 6am. They learn to cook, they learn to um, kind of grow into themselves, learn about each other, be a community, work together. Obviously, they do a lot of physical outdoor stuff, connect with nature and go through puberty. Pretty much all those boys go away as little prepubescent kids and come back as teenage boys after their six-month rotation. And there's a similar one, um, tea tops, I think, or tree tops or something um, here in Australia. And I just think it's such a wonderful rite of passage. You, you hear about it in religions as well. The Mormons, um, they can go and have six months of just going absolute bonkers, go away, take as much time as you need to do whatever you need to do and then you come back and if you decided that the world outside of the faith suits you then great and if um, you want to continue your life kind of free away from the religion fine go do it or you can go no actually I've had my blowout I've experienced life I've I've had to fend for myself but actually I want back in as I say this I'm I said Mormons I'm sorry I think it's the Amish community but you get the sense that there's there's ways in which we can help ourselves to have to grow and experience. Um, and I think we need to put ourselves through discomfort. We all know that whatever doesn't hurt you or harm you makes you stronger. But I invite discomfort in moderation into my life because it just helps me to grow in resilience and Life is bloody hard. Life is so challenging emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially. Just being an adult, oh my gosh, the amount of days I wake up and I think, oh, I just wish I could be a kid again. I'm so jealous of kids. Like it's so hard. But little things you can do to help yourself experience that challenge or that discomfort is going to help you to become more resilient and more comfortable within the challenge of everyday life. So how can we do this physically? So I'm not suggesting you cause pain to yourself, but I'm sure unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen 
um, lots of cold water submersions or ice baths, or it's called cryotherapy. Essentially, it's just submerging yourself in cold um, and then jumping into hot. You can just do the cold bit, but it's uncomfortable. It's not going to hurt you. In fact, some would claim it's really beneficial, but something that is not pleasant, but you come out of it and you think, oh, yeah, I'm really glad I experienced that. And then you might go a bit longer, or you might go a bit colder, or you might jump in the water at 5am at sunrise instead of doing it at a comfortable 9am time, whatever. You can tweak the kind of level of of challenge that you want for yourself. Emotionally, I'm sure as a challenge, you can think of something that would be emotionally hard. Is it telling someone that you deeply care about and love that you love them? For some people, just saying those words is really, really hard. But can you think of an example where you can test yourself emotionally? Maybe there's someone that has a really opposing opinion to you and it really gets you and it's been playing on your mind maybe for years and you just need to have a challenging conversation. Can you write that down in a letter? Can you voice what you want to say? Can you not be a people pleaser for once and just stand up for yourself? Is there something you can do just to test, put yourself in that challenging position where you really know you're overcoming something emotionally. Maybe there's some trauma, some grief that you've been pushing down. You know you've been ignoring it. You haven't sat with it. Maybe you can start writing a diary and let it all come out. Maybe you can start doing meditation, invite some challenging feelings into your life. But there's always ways that we can just put ourselves in a bit of discomfort emotionally with the knowledge and trust that that will actually lead to more emotional resilience, more maturity, more self-awareness, more inner peace um, later down the track. Um, Physically, another one, obvious one, I can't believe I started with the ice bars, really, um, fitness. To me, if you are not moving your body, you're disrespecting yourself. Uh, again, sounds very harsh. I'm quite being quite passionate and bold in this um, chat tonight because I'm, I'm actually. <laughs> side note, I'm just I'm I'm feeling really passionate about the um, referendum vote we've got going on at the moment. But it breaks my heart when people don't see the capability in their physical strength. So it is it, Aristotle said actually it's a shame not to know the potential in human body our human body is fascinating the most intelligent machine on the planet it is extraordinary and so many people take it for granted and don't utilize it we are so much stronger than we let ourselves even get to like i reckon we probably all get to maybe <sighs> of our physical capability. Over the years, a few people have said or remarked upon my level of fitness or athleticism. And I don't always say this. In fact, I very rarely have. But internally, I know that I am just what I believe every average human being should be. I think every human being, unless you are born with a physical ailment that prevents you from doing so, should easily, comfortably be able to run 10K. 10 kilometers because we all have legs, we all have lungs, we like we're designed to move. 
We're mammals. We should be running away from prey. We should be running towards our prey. We should be running away from a fire. We should be like, we, there is no excuse, no excuse. We should all be able to base level run a 10K. I don't believe that doing five push-ups or 10 push-ups or five pull-ups or whatever, it should be like something quite unique or unusual for a woman to do or a child to do. I just, I think we've lowered our standards. We've become so comfortable with really not utilizing our physical strength, our emotional strength, our resilience. We just, oh, it's kind of like sad. And this is what this whole podcast is about is we we're focusing too small I think we've forgotten just how incredible human beings are not can be we are we're already full of potential we know that we only use about five percent of our brains when when we're going through our everyday we know that we're not utilizing our physical capabilities we know that we're you see these examples of people who are elite, absolutely off the charts, like incredible, like superhuman. We have a phrase for it, superhuman. But if one person could be like that, maybe we 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 can all kind of strive towards them. I'm not saying we can all run as fast as Usain Bolt and we can't all be as intelligent as, um, oh my gosh, his name's just escaped me, Einstein. Or we can't all be like a musical genius like Mozart but we can certainly all be inspired by that and do a little bit more with what we've got because at the end of the day it all comes back and really the answer to the question at the beginning which is why do people complain about stuff and why do others not complain about stuff is they're not really complaining about stuff they're complaining about their own dissatisfaction with self and it's easier to complain about something outside of yourself than to look inwards and go, Ashley, I'm disappointed with myself. Again, another bold statement that I'm probably going to upset people, ruffle feathers, well done if you're still listening to this far. But is it really that you're disappointed or, I don't know, I'm going to think of something so trivial here. Your washing's on the line, you've had to wash it twice, it's raining again. This will be the third time you've had to bring it in, rewash it and put it on the so what? You know, is that really what you have to complain about? Or is it that the fact that you don't like something about yourself? We need to stop complaining about outward things and look in and take responsibility for, are we living the best, most respectful life that we can live for us? Are we honoring us? Are we respecting us? When you're choosing to put something unhealthy in your body and fuel yourself in an unhealthy way, what is that? Is that because you're self-loathing? Is that because you're not, you don't really care about yourself? If you're choosing not to move your body, potentially it's pain, but I'm sorry, you've got to work through that pain and discomfort if you're going to grow out the other side. Maybe you've got some actual physical condition. Or is it just that you've given up? You don't love yourself enough to gift yourself the joy of movement and the health of movement. And you don't have to, like I said um, a few minutes ago, you don't have to choose something stupidly extreme. It doesn't have to be something so horrific 
and so life jolting that it's going to cause a trigger response or a trauma or, you know, you don't want to tip yourself over the edge. It just has to nudge you, kind of be uncomfortable rather than being in pain, be challenged rather than being broken. So you will know your level of discomfort that you can handle. And as you get more comfortable and used to challenging yourself, that's when you push that challenge that little bit more. That's when you just ask that little bit more of yourself. But we have got to start pushing ourselves outside our comfort zones. And we have got to start, and I'm very passionate about this, helping the next generation to be more resilient, to be more capable, to be more um, equipped to deal with life. When I first moved here, I was so deeply offended that none of the children at this school looked me in the face when I was speaking to them. They were kind of like dodging my eye contact. I was doing sports coaching. I was coaching lacrosse and I had this whole class and I stopped the class. Blew my whistle. Sorry, can someone tell me please why you're not respecting me? And obviously I've come from a teaching background in the UK, so maybe it is culturally different. I don't know. I said, can someone just tell me, please, why you can't look at me in the face when I'm talking to you? Can we stop looking at the birds? Can we try and stay focused? Come on, bring your attention back to me. Not one child found it easy to remain focused on me trying to give them direction. I then had a conversation with a teacher in the staff room and she said, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Liv, but it's kind of a sign of the times. They don't know how to remain focused. They don't know how to be social. They don't really keep eye contact. They don't really have the sort of conversations where they're really engaging, looking at someone in the eye. And and she flagged it as something that the school were working on. But, oh my gosh, isn't that scary that we're not, we're not even equipping the next generation with the ability to have an eye-to-eye conversation in person, partly due to the phones, partly due to too much time on screen, but partly due to social nervousness because they don't know how to do it. They don't have to do it. Or they're scruffy because they don't have to like tidy their clothes. Or I'm not saying we have to go back to army times, but I know for a fact my grandparents were immaculate and they were respectful. And if they got something new or if they got one little new kind of gift or they they looked after it, they nurtured it because they didn't get gifts 24-7. And there's some kids and I won't say who, but there's some kids in my life who I know have everything materialistic. And the mum was like, I don't know what to do for Christmas. They have everything. I said, well, why don't you give them an experience? Because I, for one, can only remember one present I got, two, actually, two presents I got as a kid during Christmas, a velvet leotard that I wanted for ages, this red velvet thing with diamantes on the front for my gymnastics, and a baby doll that was in a checkered um, green and white kind of play suit. They're the only two gifts I remember. All the other important, valuable things that I remember from my childhood were experiences, was quality time, was memories, was people, was being somewhere, was tobogganing down the hill in the snow, was Christmas dinner and singing the songs around the um, flames on the Christmas pudding and pulling the five pence pieces out and memories, experience. So I would encourage as well that we get away from giving things and we start harnessing and nurturing experiences. And experiences can be both challenging 
and rewarding. If we just fill our children's lives or even our lives with positive experiences, we're not going to value those positive experiences because we've got nothing to vet it against. We've got no comparison. If you go for a walk in the pissing rain and there's a storm and it's blowing a gale and you've got wet feet and you're cold and you're hungry and it's getting dark and you're like, ugh, this is awful. The next time you go for a walk and it's a summer's day and it's a meadow and the sun's shining and you can hear the birds and the blue in the sky is just exquisite. And of course, that summer's day walk is going to feel 10 times better because of the comparison of the rainy walk. So you've got to balance out. Life will keep giving you these challenges. You have got to choose whether you think that challenge is going to, in the long run, help you to become more resilient, more grateful, and um, just more content. Because when you have a challenge and you overcome it, and then you experience a period of kind of neutrality or just calm or you know, a a non-challenging time, you can be so grateful for it. If if non-challenge and monotony and comfort and safety is your norm, God help you when something actually happens. Holy moly, I'm scared for those people. If you don't have any challenge in your life and then you get to a point, if you don't have life experience and you get to a point then when, I don't know, your pet dies or you crash your car or you lose your family member, Wow, wow, that is going to be very hard to deal with. So we've got to expose ourselves to both the challenges and the joys of life. So pretty sure that I've covered everything I wanted to. Um, Fritz Perls is, um, he spoke about gestalt therapy and he is a survivor of the Holocaust, Holocaust, apologies. Um, And... Basically, the whole premise of his work is that the struggle helps you to grow and we must suffer to become our best selves. I wouldn't say we have to suffer necessarily. There's certain things I wish I hadn't have had to go through. I know that those things have made me stronger. But if this sort of concept and what I've spoken about has interested you, then maybe look up Fritz Perls because he'll give some more insight on it. And I think try and reframe a negative experience as an opportunity to grow. And it's so hard to see a child crying, upset, scared, struggling, lonely, depressed. Like it's so hard to watch a loved one have to struggle, but just know that that struggle is gonna make so much difference to their resilience, to their growth, to their roundedness as a person. They'll be able to then inform the next generation or a friend, or they'll just become a better version of themselves or having go going through it. So support someone through it, but please try not to take away the challenge. We need challenges constantly. Life will throw them at us anyway. So the more practice we can have at dealing with them, the better we will deal with life in the long run. I hope this hasn't triggered you in any way. If it has, then I will put up links to people you can talk to. Um, Always really important to look after your mental health. Today is National Mental Health Awareness, World Mental Health Day today, actually. Um, So please make sure you're checking in with how you're feeling mentally. And I hope that you actively choose some challenges to set yourself up to become more resilient and a better rounded person 
in your not too distant future. Alrighty guys, take care. Bye.